with a message from God's Word, here's Charles Stanley. Would you turn please to Romans chapter 6, and I want us to read the first six verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 6, destined for the cross, and these six verses of Romans have the heart of, I believe, one of Paul's greatest messages to the believer, and he begins having talked about, in these first five chapters, the problem of sin and God's provision for that sin, and he ends up that fifth chapter by saying that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? He begins in chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, having discussed how God provided that grace? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ's death have been baptized uh, into his, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, that is, what we were before we were saved, was once and for all crucified with him, that is, with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Look in verse uh, 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Now... When we say that a thing is destined to something, we say that the believer is destined to the cross. That means that it has already been pre-programmed. That means that the sense of direction has already been set, that God has already made a predetermination. You and I read in Romans 8:29 that God predestinated us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That was a predestinated act by a sovereign God. He has something in mind. So that when we come to talk about the death of Jesus Christ, we don't have any problem with a verse that says that He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world because God, foreseeing that man would fall, He likewise provided a Redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the mind of God, Christ was that lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So Jesus came into this world, not crucified by Jews or by priests or scribes or by Romans. Jesus Christ came into this world destined to the cross. That was God's predetermined avenue and the predetermined experience for him. He said, I've come that men might have life and have it more abundantly. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. 
So the cross wasn't an intervention in the life of Jesus Christ. The cross was a destined affair in the life of the Son of God. That's why he came to die. He could not have atoned for our sins without his death. Nor could we have the hope of our life here and now for victory were it not for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What I want you to understand in this message is this. That not only was it necessary for Jesus to die for our sins, it was likewise essential that you and I die also on that cross to deal with the sin problem itself. So that we're not talking about just Jesus dying, but he says likewise that when he died, we died. Look at that sixth verse. He says, knowing this, this isn't something we hope for, or maybe he says, knowing this, that our old man, that is what you and I were before we were saved, was once and for all crucified with Christ, identified with him that our body of sin, what we have here, might be, that is the power of sin in our body, may be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves to sin. God has predetermined to conform us and shape us in the likeness of his Son. In order for that to be a living experience in our life, the believer must experience the cross now as Jesus experienced it 2,000 years ago. And I'm aware that to some people that is a very, very strange idea, but I want you to listen very carefully. You and I are as destined for the cross as Jesus was. And I want to show you why that is absolutely essential. In fact, it is just as essential for you and I to go to the cross. In fact, without our going to the cross, there is no real victory in this life. Any more than you have rain without clouds or sunshine without a sun, there is no victory apart from the believer going to the cross. It is the last place we want to go to because, in essence, here's what that means. That God has destined, predetermined that every single one of his children would come to the place in their life at some time, the sooner or the better, whereby looking at the center of their life. What is it that governs us? What is it that controls us? What is it that determines the decision-making process in our life? Whatever that is, is key. Whatever that is, is priority. The cross in the life of the believer is just as essential as the cross in the life of Jesus Christ to take care of my sins. Just as essential is the cross in the life of the believer to take care of the sin problem in every single believer. Now, we've said before, there are multitudes of people who give their life to Jesus Christ early in life, late in life. And they begin immediately trying to do better and recognize that even having been saved, something isn't right. That our self-efforts to improve ourselves and to do better and to be better somehow isn't working. There is something in the machinery that doesn't work. And so finally we either discover the truth by God's grace or we settle for a settle for Christian life which is way out here in left field, never, never maximizing our potential, never becoming the person God wants us to be, never really being shaped and conformed into his likeness and settling for a broken down, run down, settled for Christian life that has little of the implication or little of the likeness of Jesus Christ, more of the world than of Christ, more black than white, and we sort of seek to live in the gray area where we 
know we're saved, but after all, you can't be perfect. And so we just sort of wobble through the Christian life with no power, no unction, no anointing, and wonder why God is not pleased and why our life is not effective. And my friend, what I want to say to you today is that that's not God's plan for you. God has not settled for a settled for a life for you. God hasn't settled for anything less for you and me than crucifixion. And we don't like the idea because crucifixion means pain, suffering, and death. But let me ask you again, what is it at the center of your life? What is it that you're living for? If God took the center of your life out, would you have any real purpose for living? If Jesus Christ is not at the center of your life, something else, something else has priority over Him. There's something in your life that has a position that it should not have. It does not mean it should not be in your life somewhere, but only one thing has the right, has the right to be in this position, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to watch something very carefully because, you see, some things that we think that God suddenly changes his mind about and intervenes in our life and changes isn't something he's changed. It was predetermined before the foundation of the world. Listen, he says that God has predestinated us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is, he's already predetermined that, and having predetermined that, he likewise has destined every single believer for the cross. Now, historically speaking, listen to what he says in verse 6. Historically speaking, he says that God, in his mind, has already crucified every single believer with Christ. So that historically, judicially, from God's point of view, it is already an established fact. It is a truth that every believer has been crucified. It is a truth that every believer has been set free from sin. It is a truth that every believer has had the power of sin canceled in his life. That is the truth as the Bible teaches, as God knows it, and as it is. But in the living, practical reality of everyday living, in the experience of my life, the question is this. Does sin still have its power? Is sin still enslaving me? Am I free to become the person God wants me to be? Am I free to do the things that God wants to do in my life? Is Jesus Christ really Lord? Is the Holy Spirit the one who is governing and guiding my life? Is Christ at the heart? Could we take everything else out of my life and somebody say, What is at the center of your life? Life itself, Jesus. For if anything else is there and you take it away, if that is your reason for living, you no longer have a reason for living. But if Christ is at the center of your life, having crucified everything else in your life and put it upon the cross, you still have life's only ultimate, genuine, eternal reason for being alive, and that is that Christ has become your life. So I want to show you why the cross is absolutely essential. It is the matter of choice. Now we do have a choice to some degree, that is the choice whether to allow him to experientially in our life do what historically he's already done. He says we have been crucified. But in the experience of our daily life, we do have a choice. Now, sometimes God pushes us along and some of you will struggle and you will fret and fume and fight and claw and do everything possible to avoid the cross. Some of you may have the tragic experience of being able to avoid it. I certainly hope not. You may be able to avoid it in your daily experience. Historically, he says he's already crucified you. But if you do not acknowledge that and live on the basis of what is true and you escape and experience the cross life, I'm going to tell you, you may have escaped some pain only, my friend, to experience greater pain, greater disappointment, and one of these days, life's greatest disappointment. 
Let me show you why God has predetermined and destined every single one of us to come to the cross in our, in our daily experience. Let's go back, for example, to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. You recall, uh, in the very beginning, the problem began with man's fall. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world, having poisoned the whole stream of humanity, and death through sin, poisoning the whole stream, death passed to all men because all sinned. That put man in a state, a condition, a disposition, a tendency, an enslavement of sin. So that every man from Adam has had a disposition of sin, a tendency away from God. He is in a condition of being sinful. That is his very nature. He is by nature sinful. So that man fell. God knew that man was going to fall. And then what did man do? Man began to make a fatal mistake that's always fatal. That is, he began attempting to, listen now, to change his condition of sinfulness by self-effort. By doing things that appeared to be good. By correcting things that seemed to be wrong. Man began the process of improving a sinful nature. Now, if a person's nature is sinful, everything, listen, the motivation... The motivation of everything that person does, if their nature is sinful, the ultimate root motivation is still sinful. So how can you improve that which by nature is sinful if the actions and the motivations and the activities and the conversation, the conduct, is all rooted in the same roots of sinfulness? There is no way to improve that. So that man's attempt to improve himself was a total failure. For the simple reason that God knew that man could not that man could not improve himself. That's why God's provision for man's redemption isn't self-improvement, but rather it is the replacement of the old man. That's why he said, our old man, that is what you and I were before we were saved, he says, has been nailed to the cross. So that the crucifixion of the believer, which happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, what you and I were before we were saved, he says, he's nailed that to the cross. He crucified us with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when man fell, his attempt to improve himself and in working in every possible form and fashion to make life better for himself, improving himself, making himself better, it failed. Because, you see, there's no way, when the, roots, when the roots are poisoned, my friend, you can put anything you want to on the limbs, but the, the truth is that ultimately the poison of the roots runs in the trunk, out in the stem, into the fruit. The whole thing is poisoned. You can color oranges green. You can color lemons purple. It's, they're still the same. The root is there. And the nature that runs through that will never change. Therefore, man found himself in an absolutely helpless condition. How can that which is poisoned at the root, poisoned at the very root and the core, how could it ever change itself? It can't change itself. And so man attempts to change himself and to improve, and he cannot. The whole world system, which is an expression of what? It is an expression of the sinful nature of man to improve himself, to improve his environment, and to improve his own self-image. The whole thing is in the state of disintegration, and the Bible says that one of these days, every single thing that man has made will end up in fine, finite, dusty ashes. Because it is the work of human improvement. It is the work of man. 
God saw fallen man. What did he do? He reached down to the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and did what? He did for him what he could not do for himself. Now look, if you will, in verse 17, same chapter of Romans. For if by the transgression of one death reigned through the one, that is, through Adam, much more those who receive the... Listen, watch this. Talking about us now. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Watch this. Listen. Do you want to sort of shovel it through life the best you can with a settle for life, living in defeat, a little bit of victory, more defeat, roller coaster more down than up? Or do you want to do what he says? He says, reign in life. Brother, that means having victory over sin in our life, victory over temptation in life, victory over those things that would defeat us and mock and mar our life, living out the expression of the life of God. For as he says, every single believer is to be a living, walking expression of the divine life here on this earth. He says, having received the abundance of God's grace and of the gift of righteousness and having received the abundance of grace, having received the gift of righteousness, he says, we will reign, that listen, we will reign in life here and now through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's God's goal. Listen, it is His goal that you and I live reigning in the Lord Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, governed by Him, working in us and through us, moment by moment, day by day. That's God's goal, shaping us in the likeness of His Son, reigning in life. But how does God bring us to that position of reigning in life? Man fell. His self-improvement was a tragic failure. It won't work. It never has worked. It cannot work. So God reached down and gave to man what? He gave him a whole new lease on life. Look in verse 18. So then is through one transgression, that is through Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, which was Christ's death on the cross, there resulted justification, which means that God looked upon sinful man who accepted the death of his son on the cross and said, Having been guilty because of your sin, I declare you not guilty because the penalty of my son has taken care of your sin. He says, Justification of life to all men, for as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. That is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the abundance of his grace, the righteousness that we find in him. So that what happened? Because God knew that man could never reach up. His very nature is sinful. His very nature is evil. Look in Romans chapter 1 for a moment. If you want to see unbridled unrighteousness, do you want to see what man does without God? You want to see what man becomes when there is no God in his life? Look, if you will, in chapter 1 of Romans. He finally says, if you'll notice in um, uh, verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now, here is the expression of evil man. Listen to this. 
Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and vendors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therein is the evil and the root of evil man without God. No way in the world for that man to improve himself. So what did God do? God reached down from glory through the cross through his Son and made it possible for a man who's guilty in his sin to be declared no longer guilty and made righteous by the grace of God. Now, so man was saved in that experience. Now, you'd say, well... If a man is saved in that experience, he's been forgiven, then what is his future state? Well, God says that he predestinated this, this man with this new nature to do what? To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's because, you see, he says, therefore, when old, old things have passed away, all things become new. When did that happen? He says, when you and I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. He says, the old self, the, old, the person we were, the old man was crucified with him and... Buried with him, risen to walk in new, a new kind of life because we have a new nature. Listen, you are not what you used to be. You can't ever be that again because that died when you were saved. You're freed from that. And the problem is we don't realize what our freedom is. We've not recognized the freedom. But he said when he died, you died. So what do we have? We have children of God who've been crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God said about us. Been crucified with Him, but still because of our misunderstanding of because we do not know, instead of living and our lives become daily, being beautifully conformed to the likeness of Christ, what are we doing? We're still over here trying and fretting and working and trying to improve ourselves. Which brings me to the next level, and that's this. Go back to Romans chapter 7 for just a moment. All of us have read Romans 7. And I thought, my goodness, that sounds just like me, Lord. Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says. Verse 15. For that which I'm doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. Would you not agree that even since you've been saved, many times you found yourself doing the very thing you knew you shouldn't do? The very thing you wanted to do somehow, you just didn't have the power to do it. And you think to yourself, well, I wonder if I'm saved. I'm acting like I used to act. Things I don't want to do. In fact, I'm worse. In fact, what difference is it? Before, I wanted to do better at times and I couldn't do better. Now that I'm saved, my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I know that I'm heaven bound. And I'm still having problems. And sometimes with the same old habits and the same old problems. Why is it that the same old process is going on? Listen to what Paul says. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law. Confessing that it is good. So now, now watch this verse. So now, verse 17, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Listen, I have a new nature, and that nature is the Holy Spirit having given birth to myself, to my real life, to that which is in me, my spirit. Having given a new birth, a new creation, a new life. Sin is inconsistent with my new nature because we become new creations. 
Sin is inconsistent with that. But you see, if I do not know what happened at the cross, and if I do not experience what God says is my experience, then what do I do? I just keep going back to the same old thought patterns because we do have the same old body. We are living in this physical flesh with all of its five senses. Now watch what Paul says. Verse 17. No longer am I the one doing it. That is the new crucified, resurrected Paul. But sin which dwells in me, the old sin principle is here. As long as we've got flesh, brother, you're going to have appetites. And those appetites can get out of control the moment you allow them to get out of control. But what he's saying is this. The new man is now governed by the Spirit. The old man was governed by this whole fleshly mess. This was the governing process. Now Christ is in our life. The Holy Spirit is in control. Oh, the old man crucified, been to the cross, and having been to the cross now, I know that the Holy Spirit, who is, who is God in my life, who is, who is lording it over my life by my own act, of will, of submission to Him. Now we have power to overcome sin so that He says in these verses, we no longer have to be enslaved to those habits. Why? Because we've been freed from that. Liberated. But listen, if I do not know that I'm free, if I don't know that I'm liberated, if I don't know the chains are off, listen, if a man's in prison and he's freed and he doesn't know he's free, he's not going to try to get out. And you see, there are many of God's people who are saved but imprisoned by habits and fears and anxieties and worries. And they don't know that there's freedom because the freedom comes on the other side of the cross. And I'm willing to come to that cross and let God plaster everything dear to me on that cross and say to him, I die to everything dear to me. That's when I become a free man. But until then, I've got to hold on to the things that give me substance for life and meaning to live. And listen, when, when Jesus Christ puts everything on the cross, when you come to the place that He can put everything on the cross, what does that do? That frees us from the attachments of this world. It doesn't mean that God's going to take away everything. It just means that we become freed from having to hold on to get our self-esteem and our acceptance out of anything we do or have. Now listen to what He says. He says, for I know in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in me that is in my old flesh. For the wishing to do good is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I don't want to do. Verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Now listen. Watch this. This is why the cross, that all of us are destined for the cross. What do we say? First of all, that God put man in a perfect situation and he failed. Man's self-improvement was a futile mistake. God reached down and redeemed him. And God showed him that his destination was to be conformed to the likeness of Christ on this earth, that you and I are to be the living, walking expressions of divine life here on earth. To see us is to see Christ. We are not the same as Christ, but indwelt by Him. To experience Him. Now, even having been saved and recognizing what His ultimate goal is, how does God get us in the position of walking in freedom? How does He get us to the position of being freed and liberated? It is not man's effort. Man, listen, man may want to do the good, he can't do good. And that's why 
God has destined every single one of us to come to the cross in our human daily experience. You say, now what do you mean by that? I mean simply this. That his desire for our life is to live in and through us and, to, and our life ought to be a living expression of the life of Christ. That, that's what he's doing in us. He, he wants to so live in us that these are his hands, his eyes, his lips, his feet. That you and I, in our secular vocation, that's the way we make a living as the saints of God, as we live out the life of Jesus, which must be paramount over vocation and everything else. Doesn't mean you have to go out and quit your job and say, I just want to be a Christian. We're not talking about that. I'm saying, what's paramount? What is pivotal? What is at the pinnacle? What is the zenith? What's the hub of your life? Is it your vocation or Christ? Is it your family or Jesus? What is, what is at the center of your life? What God wants to do is to eliminate. He wants to put everything that's at the center of your life on the cross except Jesus. He wants everything nailed there and then let Christ live through you in your vocation with your family and your friends and whatever prosperity and whatever financial situation yours may be. God simply wants to express the life of himself through your life. And as long as I'm holding on to anything in this world that, that has first place in my life, then, my friend, the liberty and the freedom is not there. Now, notice what he says back over in the sixth chapter. He says, knowing this, that our old man, that is what you were before you were saved, has been crucified with him. That our body of sin might be done away with, that is, the power of it in our life is broken. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, watch. If that's true, if that is true and it is true, the question is, what about the experiencing of that? Paul said historically, when Jesus died, every believer was identified with him. When we go through baptismal waters, you know, it's amazing to me. People talk about whether you sprinkle or pour or immerse. The issue is, what is the meaning of it? When we take people in these baptismal waters, into those waters they go, which is a picture, not only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but a picture of what? Of our death. Our burial and our resurrection to be seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, seated in the heavenlies in Him with my feet on the ground and His life living within me, expressing His godly life through us. That's what it's all about. We take people through the baptismal waters, burying them in the water, raising them up again to walk in newness of life. We say, what is it? A picture, a picture of our crucifixion. We die. We are buried. We rise to walk in newness of life. And you see, here's Paul's confession of his experience. Now, he says, historically, it's already happened. In the mind of God, it's done. Judicially, it's already happened. In experience, what is it? Here's Paul's experience. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. That is not the old Paul, the new Paul. Not I. But now Christ is living within me. And the life which I'm now living, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew the liberty and the freedom and the victory so that Romans 7 was replaced by Romans 8. Romans 7 was replaced by Romans 8. Romans 7 is, the, is a chapter of bondage. Romans 8 is a chapter of freedom and liberty. Why? Because the crucifixion. The experience of dying, my friend, had become a living experience in his life. Now listen. Our death on the cross 
Not historically, that's already done. But our willingness, our willingness to come to the cross and to experience death by experience. Death to everything in my life. And say, yes, Lord, here I am with no strings, no preconceived notions. What wilt thou do unto me, Lord? Here am I, send me, all open to him. My friend, I want to tell you something. Our death on that cross is the solution and the answer to every single problem the believer has. Now, I understand that some of you say, you don't know my problem. I want to say this again. That our experience of the cross, when we experience in our own visible, live human experience of the cross, that becomes the solution to every problem. You can't name a problem in your life. That's not the answer to it. I've seen God do some of the most amazing things the past few months. I'm overwhelmed at what I see God do. In people's individual lives who fought God, who fought each other, who've, who've been striving and working and planning and driven and driven and driven. Come to the cross. That old drive directing the wrong direction has gone. What happens? They get free. They get God's energy, God's wisdom, God's strength, God's power, freedom. And for the first time in their life, they begin to enjoy what, what? What once had them. Oh, they had this and they had this, but what they didn't realize is that it, it had them. It had them all over. They were enslaved by the very things and the very people they related to. And I want to say it again. When you're willing to come to the cross, you may be on the verge of divorce. You may be on the verge of losing your family. You may be on the verge of losing your business. You may have already lost it. You may have already lost your family. You say, how in the world can the cross be the solution? I want to tell you, my friend, it is the solution. Listen, when you die, you know what happens? The sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, loving, gracious Lord God Almighty who rules and controls this universe and whose life is the answer to your life and whose cross is the solution to your problems, that God moves into your life. He takes up all the pieces. He wipes off the dust. He takes away the blood. He puts your life back together again, glued and sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and living under the shadow of the cross. I want to tell you, He is the answer. There is no other solution. There are situations that you and I can describe today that people are helpless and desperate and disillusioned with life and want to give up and quit it all. And I understand that. But I want to tell you, there's one solution. There's one solution. That's it. That's the cross. There's some things for which there is no other solution. In fact, my friend, the truth of it is, there's no real victory. There's, you see, you can settle for a pretty good life. But my friend, one of these days when you stand before God, you're going to find out how very, very poor that was and what you really missed. He says the old man died. Paul says, when he died, I died. He says, now the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me show you something. I want to make this clear. We're talking about a biblical experience. 
We're not talking about denominations. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about what God says in his book. That when Jesus Christ died, that we were identified in his death. When he died, we died. Now, he wants that by experience, moment by moment in our life, where we come to the place where we recognize, God, I can't. You're going to have to come to the place where you're willing to say, and this is very difficult, the more successful you are, the, the, the better looking you think you are, the more talent you think you have, the more you've got going for you, the more difficult it's going to be for you to say, God, I'm a failure. But I want to help you out a little bit. If you'll just look at your life today, I don't mean the way the world looks at it, but I mean if you'll just look at your life against this book, all of us would have to say, in our human strength and our effort to overcome sin in our life, God, I am a failure. Now, I know all about what all the success books talk about, I fail versus I am a failure, but I want to tell you, when it comes to living the Christian life, we are failures. Amen? We are failures. Let's face it. I mean, we have flat failed. We, be, we have failed because we are failures. And we'll keep on failing because we'll keep on being a failure until I'm willing for God to do with my life on the cross what he desires. First of all, I'm a failure. Secondly, you have to ask yourself this question, Lord, what's at the center of my life? And my friend, I can't answer that for anybody but myself. What's at the center of your life? I mean, really at the center. Is it your wife? Is that what you're living for? Your husband? Your children? Well, isn't it all right to live for my children? No. If God takes away your children, what do you have to live for? What is at the core of your life? What's at the center of your life? Is it your business? Suppose you lose that. You don't have anything to live for. You say, well... It doesn't make any difference what you name. My friend, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the driving force at the center of our life? And then thirdly, if I'm going to, get on, if, if, if I'm going to really let God make that an experience in my life, I've got to be willing to come to this place to say, Lord, you have permission to do anything you want to do with my life, any way you want to do it, any, any how you, anywhere, any place, you have absolute unreserved, unhindered permission. Listen, when you drive a man's hands with big spikes to the cross and drive his feet there, there's not a whole lot more he can do, is there? There he hangs to die. Let me tell you something. That's the sweetest death that God could provide. Because you see, God knows. You turn that cross around, what do you have? You have the most beautiful life God could ever provide. But you see, he's got, to get rid of, he's got to get rid of all the stuff, the junk, the things, the ideas, the thoughts that govern and control and want to take over our life. Let me ask you a question. Does God have permission to sift through all your relationships and all you own? And all you have, and all your dreams, and all your goals, and all your ideas. Does, does he have the privilege? Have you given him the privilege today, Lord? Just sift all that. Whatever comes out, that's fine. Whatever you want to take is all right. Just sift it. Have you told him he could sift your life? Are you willing to say to him, Lord, I take my position on the cross. 
And I dot everything dear to me. You sift everything I have. And you're welcome to keep what you know ought not to be in my life. Have you ever told him that? And then, my friend, the biggest battle you're going to have is this battle right here. It's the battle of accepting by faith what he said. Listen, he said, when he died, I died. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Satan's going to say to you, what a foolish statement that is. Look how alive you are. But you have to go back to God's word. He said, where in times past you were dead in trespasses and sins. But, brother, you're, you're, you had the blood flowing in your veins and this whole flesh operated and everything would, would, would work and coordinate. But God said you were dead. And let me ask you a question. And here's the biggest battle you're going to have. Are you going to believe what you feel? Are you going to believe what God says is true? That's the biggest battle you're going to have. And I want to tell you where you're headed. You're headed to the cross. And what I want to do is I want to share with you how you get there. I want to share you the trip. There are a lot of things about it I want to share with you. I'm just simply saying in this message one thing. That God has destined you for the cross. And if by chance you're able to weasel your way out of it. You will have committed life's greatest mistake. Let God reach way down into what you are and expose it, show you what it is, and see if you're living a settled for life, and see if God has something beautiful to make out of your life. Listen, some of you are hurting, you're full of fear, you're anxious, you've just about chalked God off, and I understand that. You just about chalked him off. You're at the point of taking your own life. You've got a lot of things. You've said, I'm sick and tired of the whole mess. It's not worth it. There is no answer. There is no solution. This whole world's going to hell. I don't care anything else about it. I want to get out. I want to tell you just one thing. If you'll just allow me the opportunity, I can tell you, my friend, how to avoid a whole lot of heartache and maybe an everlasting, unending, eternal heartache. Father, we bless you for blessing us. We praise you for your patience and your goodness and your grace. And what a beautiful way you said it to Paul. The abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may reign in life with him. And Lord, more than likely most believers today don't feel they're dressed up in any clothes to reign in, but rather to grub in. They're not crowned. But rather they feel conquered, enslaved, in bondage. And Father, my prayer is that you might simply move this truth gently, lovingly, piercingly, deep into the life of every hearer today. To begin opening hearts and minds and spirits to understand what it means to be crucified with Christ. Father, you know, if I knew... Any other way to share it, I would. So I know that it can't be the preaching that does it. Can't be anything on my part that gets the truth across. You have to do it, Lord. And I humble myself before you, Father, to say with all of my heart, would you get the truth of the crucified life to those who are hungry, those who are thirsting, those who are yearning, even those who are curious? 
Those who need it but don't know that they need it. Those who are at the point of wrecking and ruining their life or their marriage or their family. Father, my prayer to you in Jesus' name. That his cross may become the most powerful instrument in our life. By experience. Which we know to be the key that unlocks the prison house in which so many of our children are bound today. My friend, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to ask you today, right where you are, to bow your head and tell him, Lord, I'm in bondage and I want to be freed. And I am accepting Christ's death on the cross as payment for my sin. And today I confess my sin. I look to him and ask for forgiveness. Today I put my life in your hands. And Lord, as I'm instructed and as I'm taught, and as the Holy Spirit so enables me, indeed I do want to walk by grace in thy spirit. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Dr. Charles Stanley, speaker on the In Touch television and radio broadcasts. To order additional copies of this message, or for a catalog listing available video and audio copies of other messages by Dr. Stanley, call toll-free 1-800-323-3747, or place an order online when you visit our website at intouch.org. If you prefer to write for more information, our mailing address is In Touch, Box 7900, Atlanta, Georgia, 30357. If outside the USA, please contact your local InTouch office. This has been a production of InTouch Ministries, Atlanta, Georgia.